Welcome, everybody. I am in such a good mood. I had such a great night. At the time I'm recording this, I just had my very first ever stand-up science show. It was an incredible success. It sold out. The show was fantastic. People absolutely loved it, went crazy for it, and as promised, you guys helped spread the word for the first show. Uh, it was a success, so I'm rebooking Madison. Going to do it again in three months, aiming for January. There might be a little wiggle room there. I don't have the date exactly locked in, but it will be locked in very soon after uh, this Midwest run is complete. And then I'm adding another city. I have Asheville, North Carolina locked in for February. As promised, if these first shows go well, if this show is uh, is a success in a given city, I will rebook the show and make it in the hopes of making a quarterly show and add a new city. I want this to be all over the country and on a regular basis. I think this show is going to be something really special and I I I knew the show was going to be fantastic and and a uh, great time for anyone that showed up. I just had no idea if anyone was going to show up or not. It is incredibly hard doing all the marketing. I could the only thing that didn't go right on the show there's a bunch of marketing snafus, there's a bunch of behind the scenes stuff, some lighting issues, a cord of technical issues here and there and and kind of day of show frantically running around fixing some things and um outside of that cuz this is, you know, these I'm doing these in small venues. It's kind of a one-man operation, and so I'm doing a lot of this stuff on my own, including the marketing, so anything you guys can do to help would be appreciated with spreading the word for Minneapolis, October 17th, Chicago, October 18th, Milwaukee, October 21st, Des Moines, Iowa, October 25th, Portland, Oregon, November 1st, Seattle, Washington, November 8th, Tacoma, Washington, November 15th. Again, the format of the show is me hosting. I warm up the crowd with 15, 20 minutes of science-related material and some of my ideas about life that have been influenced by what I've learned on this podcast and in uh, various uh, science books that I've enjoyed reading over the years. And then I introduce the first academic to give a 15-minute talk. On last night, it was uh, about how children interact with multimedia as they are now growing up with tablets and these things and how it's uh how they perceive them and how we can utilize them to um uh, to be better learning instruments potentially in the future and then uh and then we had the very funny nick hart who's been on conan o'brien and really funny smart comedian and then a uh, another academic uh, gave a 20-minute a, a talk on video games and perception past guest sean green you can go back and and hear our interview uh video games and learning he was one of the first guests on the show and then we ended uh, stand up science with all four of us on stage doing a Q and A with the audience is the advantage of doing this nice, small, intimate venues is everyone gets to be involved. And it was, you know, it was a little more practical to fill and that man, that feeling of a full room, the energy, the excitement, and it's, everything's contagious, you know, the, that every, everyone's, so uh, not just laughing more, but uh, so much more curious, so much more engaged in the ideas. It was, this show was a dream to put on, and it's only going to get better. I'm only going to get more experienced as a host, just as I've gotten better at a host on this show. Still kind of long intros, if you ask me, but uh, still getting better as a host. And the same thing with stand-up science. So once again, Every single one of these shows, even if you don't live in one of these cities, every single one that sells out, I'm going to rebook it in the effort of making it a quarterly show. So I'll try to rebook it for January, and then I will lock in another city. I have a whole bunch of cities all over the place, a lot on the East Coast at the moment, just because of it's working with some other routing. Uh, but I have... I have cities and venues that I've been contacting all over the place. They're waiting to hear how this first run goes. I'm waiting to see how it goes as well because it needs to be economically viable to pay for all the travel and all the marketing expenses and everything else. And by the way, tickets, if you buy them ahead of time, they're like 15 bucks, sometimes cheaper on some of these shows. If you get them at the door, they're more. So save some money, get tickets ahead of time. And do you know that a TED Talk, if you want to go and watch a TED Talk, it's like, 
$5,000. Look that up. You probably think I'm just like throwing out a nice round imaginary number. It starts at $5,000 to go to a TED conference. That's if you meet the criteria, their standard of what is like uh, appropriate audience member or whatever. And then it's like $8,500 for the bare minimum year membership. 25000 is is like a standard year membership to see the TED Talks quarter of a million dollars to be a a patreon member of ted with this and that and you get your name on a thing or something or other well uh i come to my show for 15 bucks it'll be better and i'll sign something for you for free if you want (laughs) what do you want me to do i'll throw in whatever i can i got some stickers you can grab got some here we are stickers come and grab some stickers 15 bucks if you get them ahead of time this is an incredible deal uh so uh, please help me pull all of this off and uh enjoy today's episode it is absolutely fantastic such important information and by the way this is some of this information is going to be a little new to you guys but i've already recorded a bunch of episodes since and some of it's been been coming up a little more it's it's interesting as you learn about a subject you start seeing it you start noticing it more and oh i learned about that and then you hear the someone talking about crispr or something like that now you know what it is and and you pay more attention to it and so we're building we're expanding our minds and we're expanding science outreach so thank you guys for downloading and enjoy the show are we yes where are we here why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am talking with associate professor at Reed College. Sarah Schock is joining me. Thank you, Sarah. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and uh, thanks for fitting me into your busy schedule before you go off and travel and do all sorts of fun things. I'm excited to talk with you today and also a little nervous because this is a little bit beyond my skill set here is some of some of your work but i've taken genetic courses and stuff like that before it's it's been a little while for me we can start simple <laughs> and, and dive yeah deep. yeah well that's what i was hoping to set up for the audience because it has been a little while since we've we've really talked we talk a lot of the show about kind of a lot of the bigger like evolutionary psychology biology processes and we, we talk a lot about um a lot of like social experience uh, experiments and stuff like that as well that that can be a lot of fun and everything to and sometimes on a and more of a base level sometimes a, a bit more relatable and and you know not not as intimidating with the jargon but it's such an important thing to really get into some of the nuts and the bolts of, of <laughs> and the foundations of some of this stuff as well. I think people often find out they're more acquainted than they realize right. with some of the sophisticated stuff because it's in the news or it's part of the stories you're hearing, but they don't know that they already are acquainted with it. Well, terrific. Well, so. I'm excited to find out how much stuff <laughs> you already I know. already know, but don't know that I already know. <laughs> I, I bet I'll I, I bet I'll pull some stuff out of some deep recesses of my mind. There but, you go. So to start off, because who knows? Well, maybe we'll even do a follow up to this uh, eventually in, in a little time down the line, and, and really get into more and more complicated ideas of what you do. But to start off, um, so you talk about mobile DNA, which is something we haven't talked about on the show. And I think we're going to need a little bit of a foundation just to get to mobile DNA, which most people, kind of including myself, aren't, uh, aren't, <laughs> aren't Usually when I tell with. people about it, it is the first time they've heard about it. Yeah. And there's a look of shock on their face when they hear about what it is that I'm talking about and when they find out that it's so ubiquitous, that it's it's a part of our DNA as humans, and it's actually a part of all organisms' DNA, that there's a subsection of it that is mobile and, and can move around. So I think you're right. Let's start at the beginning, which is 
maybe with non-mobile DNA or yeah. what we could call regular DNA. My listeners would definitely be much more familiar with that. <laughs> so, and this is in biology classes. This is also how we start. And I think um, people are always a little bit, you know, um, we always start with Mendel, right? Gregor Mendel, yeah. the grandfather of genetics. And and part of the reason why we start with Mendel and the genetic patterns that he elucidated over 150 years ago now, and that, that whole paradigm of non-mobile DNA is because that's kind of the basics of how inheritance works. We think about it and we kind of even probably intuit it um, quite a bit, especially if maybe you have a kid or you are someone's kid, which the latter, almost everybody has a familiar sense of, which is this idea that you got the DNA that you have from your parents, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that inheritance from parents to offspring is also called vertical inheritance. And you can think about it if you put your arms up in the air, you've got the parents and then they have descendants. And so you put your arms down. That's the vertical motion that we think about of DNA going from one generation to the next. And do you have like a dance that you do in your classes <laughs> while you're explaining? I can't get a good sound guy in class to uh, do the, the the music I need for my sure. interpretive dance. So um, yeah, usually it's just a lot of wild gesticulation. Uh, no music. It's very modern. <laughs> so that vertical inheritance of what we would call we wouldn't call it immobile DNA, but we on on our talk today are going to talk about immobile or regular DNA is very normal. And I think people have a grasp on that, that mm-hmm. you get DNA from your parents. Mobile DNA is DNA that is in your cells right now and can move from one spot to another on a chromosome. So it can do that via two main roots. One is it can cut itself out of the spot that it's in currently and then reinsert in a new spot. And the other is it can just replicate itself without cutting out and that replicate piece can insert in a new spot. And this can happen in the genome, in the cells, in your body, in the current day. This can happen right now. And it can happen um, a lot. It can happen rarely. But that movement of DNA, instead of thinking about it from generation to generation, from parents to offspring, but within an individual from one spot to another, is the phenomenon of mobilized DNA that I study. And it's it, it was discovered in the late 40s, first published about in the 1950s by a woman named Barbara McClintock that almost Corn. everybody... Yes, in corn, exactly. Yeah. Hey, uh, I knew I knew something. See, you already knew about mobile DNA and you didn't know. I already know knew about Barbara. You knew. Exactly. She I mean yeah. she well, won she the She was like a a renegade kind of because no one no one believed uh, uh believed what she was trying to tell people for a long time. Exactly. Right? So the 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 whole idea of mobile DNA really crashed into the paradigm of static DNA that people had be- become comfortable with. Um and and in fact static DNA hadn't been known about for that long by the time she'd started observing things that were not, they didn't fit with that paradigm. And by the way, I know Barbara McClintock, but my listeners don't necessarily. So she she ended up um, winning the Nobel Prize for her work. Um, um, 1983, I think, was the year that she won it. She's on a postage stamp. She's She's gotten her props in the end. But you are exactly right that during her career, her findings really challenged um, what people understood to be the way that DNA worked. And so a lot of people didn't want to believe it or they they didn't understand it and so they ignored it. And there were several decades when her findings about mobile DNA were, they didn't get her any credit. They probably brought her a fair amount of trouble and they didn't cause the stir in the broader genomics or at that point it was just the genetics community that they probably should have. But starting... In the 1970s, there was renewed interest in this possibility, and then in the 80s, a little bit more. But really, the field of mobile DNA um, as a subdiscipline within genetics, which is a subdiscipline within biology, has exploded, I would say, in the last 20 years to the point now that there's a whole journal called Mobile DNA devoted to papers about DNA that moves. And a lot of what we know about some of the common public Um, interest stories related to genetics like GMOs or genetic modification actually have their roots in phenomena related to mobile DNA. I don't study those phenomena. I don't study GMOs or CRISPR, but the ties between those ideas and what we 
know and what we're learning about mobile DNA are, are very, very close ties. Hmm. So again, it's probably a case of you know more than you realize you know because um, the way we do genetic modification of plants. I've heard of CRISPR, and, and, CRISPR and everyone knows yeah. about well, not everyone knows about them, but everyone's heard of GMOs. Right. And and the one of the mechanisms to genetically modify something is to actually purposefully cause some DNA to jump into a plant, for example, in a new spot that has a cassette inserted into it that's the gene that you want to modify the plant with, for mm. example. So mobile DNA is this movement of DNA kind of, you can think of it as being in real time. You can think of it as happening on a single chromosome or between two chromosomes in a single cell, the um, move it's a very different dance for this one. Very right? yeah, it's very, it's side um, to side, side exactly. Okay. Yeah, and um, if it happens in a cell, for example, on your arm, there might be some repercussions for the cells on your arm um, because you've got the movement of DNA. But you're not going to pass cells on your arm to your offspring. The only cells that you pass to your offspring are the cells that you would make in the testes or that someone would make in the ovaries. So the movement of DNA horizontally, that's how we talk about mobile DNA, is horizontal movement instead of vertical movement, is high impact wherever it happens um, if the mobile piece of DNA, let's say, interrupts a gene. If the new place that it moves is the middle of a gene, then now that gene might not work or it might work differently. It can also be low impact because if the piece of DNA that moves moves into a spot that doesn't have any functional DNA sequence, then it just inserts there and it hangs out and no one knows anything better. It's just a new copy of a, we can call it a junk piece of DNA. The vast majority of mobile DNA events probably fall into that latter category. They probably insert somewhere and they don't really do anything. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> and in fact, that probably is part of the reason why two-thirds of the human genome actually is the remnants of DNA mobilization events. So the hmm. vast majority of your genome is actually, you can think of them as the little carcasses or leftovers of pieces of DNA that jumped to a new spot and didn't do anything all that bad. They just kind of accumulate and collect there. But it's a huge proportion of the genome that is actually the remnants of this type of activity, the left to right activity instead of the vertical activity that we talked about from parents to offspring. See, it's, uh, speaking of like we, we, we know it when you hear it, that really resonates with me because I do feel like a majority of my genome is pretty lazy and really hasn't been contributing uh, much to my life. But now you don't have to feel alone because <laughs> it's true for all of us. Uh, am, am I wrong in in finding mobile DNA to be a little scary? That <laughs> there, it seems like there's there's some high risk situations going on with mobile DNA. So it is the, one of the um, terms that people use to refer to it is a genomic parasite. Uh, so, you know, like those... Well, I was a little scared before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was hoping you were going to be like, oh, no, No, silly. no, no, you're fine. <laughs> um, so they, they, are, they have a bunch of names, a bunch of different monikers. Um, mobile DNA, genomic parasites, selfish DNA is another term that's used to describe DNA that can replicate itself. Um, and I think it's pretty natural to imagine kind of creepy crawlies multiplying and spreading. And in some sense, that's not a terrible way to think about it. But again, the vast majority of the activity by mobile DNA elements is not going to cause any real damage. It's almost like having a virus that's replicating in your genome, um, but it doesn't cause you to cough. It doesn't cause you to sneeze. It doesn't make you run to the bathroom. Um, and in fact, um, those kinds of viruses, viruses that can replicate in our genome but don't have any symptoms, are a huge subsection of this broad category of DNA that we refer to as mobile DNA, and they're called endogenous viruses. So in contrast to the viruses that you hear about in movies like Outbreak, endogenous viruses live in your genome, and they can replicate and move in the genome, but they don't pass from individual to indiv individual, hmm. um, and they typically don't have any symptoms. 
Man, life is amazing. It's a, it's incredible that organisms can even exist it with is. everything going against them. It is. With all of the entropy and the randomness and the things that can go wrong. Happy accidents, many of them, <laughs> but lots of stochasticity as well. Hmm. Justin, I feel like I'm maybe going to ask a stupid question, but it might There's be an no other. <laughs> oh, yes, there is. <laughs> First off, I've heard a number of them. Um, <laughs> okay, try me. <laughs> um, well, I, I think that uh, that this this might also be uh, popping in some of the listeners' head as well, because uh, speaking of things that are becoming all the rage now, everyone's talking about epigenetics. Mm -hmm. Are these related in any way? They are. So epigenetics is the phenomenon, um, is, is not a phenomenon, it's the whole category of phenomena that happen to the genetic material. The word epigenetics actually holds the clue to its meaning because epi means on top of, like epidermis is the, the scientific word for skin. And that's epidermis it's on top of the dermis epigenetics are things that happen on top of the genetics so they're um, features of the dna that control for example whether the, whether the dna is going to be available or whether the dna is going to be damaged or whether the dna is going to be in use or out of use is the whole field of epigenetics so it's not concerned again with the specifics of the dna that a parent might pass on to their offspring or the specifics of which piece of DNA is going to cut itself out and move someplace else. That's a geneticist's job to study that. But the epigeneticist is studying what features of the DNA molecule allow a piece of DNA to be cut and move to another part of the genome. What makes another part of the genome available for that DNA to colonize or cut or insert. So epigenetics is really important for talking about the control or the likelihood or the spread of something like mobile DNA because there's a lot of moving parts, no pun intended, maybe a little bit of a pun intended, um, to the act of a piece of DNA cutting itself out and inserting someplace else. And if the epigenetics are not appropriate or or not are not right for that movement then it's not going to happen and if the epigenetic um controls are favorable then that piece of mobile dna could move and it could proliferate wildly um, there's an example of a type of mobile dna um, element it's called an alu element and it's the most famous type of mobile dna in humans because there's one million copies of this stretch of DNA in the exactly human genome. Exactly one million. Not exactly. There's <laughs> probably over one million in most humans walking around today because it's an active element that's still jumping in the genome. It's still moving around. So whether or not an alu element can jump is hmm. partially determined by its own DNA code. That's the genetics part of it. But it's also partially determined by the epigenetics, the environment that it's potentially moving around in and whether or not the DNA is available for it to insert. That's just one kind of simple example of how epigenetics and genetics are very much um, cousins. Hmm. Uh, so why why is there mobile DNA in the first place? What What's it even doing there? Why is there you? Why is there right. trees? Why are there... Cows. Uh, so <laughs> I, I mean, is there? Uh, I, I guess I mean to ask: Is there? There, there must have been some sort of um, benefits over time, evolutionary benefits to having this mobile. N not just why must there have been uh, for it, uh, for it to exist. Well, that's not necessarily so for it true, to exist. But... It doesn't need to be beneficial. Right, right, right. Yeah, and this is a big trap in right. evolutionary biology. Is that yeah we're drawn to the stories of clever yeah. maneuvers in evolutionary biology to succeed. Right, right. But lots of things that happen genetically are not clever adaptive strategies. They're problems. There's well, a lot of Barbara McClintocks out there that people are just right about. They're like, eh, this person does actually have the wrong idea. Right. And then well, like 30 years later, we don't discover that they were right. They were just actually wrong. Well, think about it. Every every disease that's caused by a mutation, uh -huh. that 
that is around. And one could ask the same question. Why is that mutation around? It doesn't help us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, bad things happen. Right. Um, and in genetics, the word for bad is not bad. The word for bad is deleterious. So things that make things worse are called deleterious. And deleterious events in genetics are just a reality that don't get as much publicity. Um, They don't get as much attention by nature photographers or by documentarians because they are not, um, they're not the fun stories to hear. Like, oh my gosh, look at that insect that's perfectly camouflaged to its background. Yeah, right. This this straight linear evolutionary arrow toward perfection. Exactly. That we all exactly. Imagine. So there's a lot of arrows going in a lot of directions, and mobile DNA movement probably is a great thing for your listeners and for people in general to get comfortable with in terms of the the crazy mess of arrows mm-hmm. in biology. Some of them do point towards an adaptation. So sometimes a piece of mobile DNA will insert into a location and it will provide a benefit. It is a type of mutation that will make the gene that it inserted into work just a little bit better or make a little bit more gene product or turn on earlier. It can do good things. But the vast majority of the time, it does pretty much nothing and just clutters Mm -hmm. the genome. And sometimes it's really bad and it's um, interrupting an important functional location because it inserted. And in that case, you might have it what we call a disease phenotype, or the simple way of saying it is you might see a genetic disease. Um, or it could be lethal. If a transposable element, that's the, the um, technical term for a piece of mobile DNA that can transpose to a new spot, inserts into an essential gene for life, then that that cell is probably not going to make it. So there's a whole range of possible effects from lethal to strongly deleterious to mildly deleterious to what we call neutral, doesn't really have an effect, but just occurs, to beneficial. And the stories you're going to hear about the most are always the beneficial ones, but that doesn't mean they're the most common stories. Survivorship bias. Exactly. So... Man, sometimes I I do feel like just the mobile DNA of the world. I just feel like I'm just cluttering <laughs> up this system. You're wondering why you even exist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, well, I do. So, okay. Let me phrase things this way. I'm okay. going. I'm going to give you. That wasn't a stupid question, by the way. That is probably the most common question mm-hmm. people ask about mobile DNA: is why would this be here? And just just to to acknowledge the importance of that question, um, some really hardcore mobile DNA biologists think the why should be applied to organisms like us, mm-hmm. big organisms that serve as hosts for mobile DNA. We're kind of like a sack of DNA that the mobile DNA can use as a habitat. So they're more like, why us? Yeah, Mobile DNA is the sleekest, most efficient replicating machine you can have it's yeah if just you listen a, to the mobile dna podcast they're like isn't it unfortunate we gotta jump around these dumb exactly l- l- bodies lumbering it's like around trying to survive in you know rush hour traffic like it's just a pain <laughs> no i mean it, it's mobile dna kind of have it down they've got it dialed in gonna be the smallest unit i can be and still replicate they're mm. not thinking this they don't have brains but um in some ways, you can turn that question on its head, I guess, is what I'm trying to right. say, and say, well, why this complex, complicated mass of cells with its social system and its need for food and all these other things when you could just have a replicating molecule? Hmm. So say, uh, talking about genetically modifying things, say uh, say I, I, I'm, we're going to task you or a person with making a, a 
some corn or fruit or uh, another being or whatever it might be. And we're going to get in there. We're going to use the best science or maybe even artificial intelligence. And, and we're going to uh, kind of replicate life, but make it better, make it more resilient, more flexible, something that can maybe potentially live forever. It is, is mobile DNA something that you would put into a system like that? You being this, this creator getting to start from scratch um, or, or is this just uh, something that just came al- along the way and hasn't, uh, so uh, had the, the, a chance to, uh, do you, do you I, know what I'm trying yeah, to get at? Yeah. Um, so in the world of genetic engineering, which mm-hmm. is the world you're talking about, not a world I want to be in charge of. Okay. Um, but does mobile DNA have a role in that world? And it definitely does. Um, for example, for quite some time now, people have tried to tackle certain genetic diseases with gene therapy. Um, gene therapy being the idea that if an individual has two non-functional copies of a particular gene that they happen to inherit from their parents, and so they're not making something, some protein product that's really important for for development, that um, if you could deliver a good copy of that gene to that individual that instead of them having to take orally or by IV that protein weekly or daily for the rest of their life because they can't synthesize it themselves, you could actually deliver to them a good copy of the gene that functioned even though they didn't inherit two good copies or even one good copy from their parents. Um, So that is an arena, for example, where mobile DNA has been thought to potentially be of help, that maybe the fact that mobile DNA can cut DNA and insert itself would be a good delivery mechanism for giving an individual a good copy of a gene. Has that happened yet? No. Are people working on that possibility? Yes. Hmm. Um, In terms of more large-scale whole organism uh, engineering, it might not be necessary to use mobile DNA because what you really want to do is engineer the entire thing. You're not delivering a small subset or a little a little cassette. You want to change everything about it. And if that's the case, you probably can just bypass the mobile DNA and engineer what you want to engineer. Um, you, I mean, you're going to have some other hurdles <laughs> in front of you. But mobile DNA as a delivery guy, basically um, – or girl, delivery girl, uh, either way, all kinds Let's of delivery vagabond. people. Yeah. <laughs> as as a um, an employee of Grubhub, um, <laughs> could work for small package, small loads that need to be delivered. And th- that is, in fact, an active area of research. And, in fact, what you've heard about in the news about CRISPR, um, this genetic modification technique that's really gotten a lot of attention in the last few years, CRISPR is a form, the, the origination of that system is a form of naturally occurring mobile DNA in bacteria. So someone found that this was happening in bacteria, a mobilization of DNA, and it has now been harnessed for specific delivery of specific gene sequences that people really want to have in their recipient organism. So that's to an- the short version of this answer is yes. Yes, we can be gods one day. <laughs> no, no. Yes, mobile <laughs> no. DNA has a role in genetic engineering. Well, I just wanted to you, put words you can in your be, mouth. You can be a god. <laughs> I well, gonna, I, I mean, I want, I'm, I'm trying to – I have no interest You want to save either, the world. I but, understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to give incentive to my listeners to keep listening each week. And the best thing I can think to sell them is immortality. It's, yeah. it's worked for years and years. It's true. People have, <laughs> people have been immortality talking the old immortality. <laughs> Either <Exactly>. one. <laughs> so how do you go about um, studying these vagrant uh, DNA, if I can call them that? Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Vagrant DNA. <laughs> um, so I personally study them using um, a very broad perspective, a kind of a mile high perspective. Um, so since the late 80s and early 90s, we are we are now in what we call the whole genome sequencing era. So this means instead of only being able to get the gene sequence for a small 
segment of the genome, 100 base pairs, 1,000 base pairs, maybe 10,000 base pairs, we now routinely can sequence all of the DNA in a given organism, or we can certainly sequence all of the DNA in at least one or a few cells of that organism. And so um, you might remember the hullabaloo around the human genome sequencing project when it first came out, though some of your younger listeners probably don't remember that. Um, that project started in 1990 and was completed in 2001. And then since basically 2000, the speed at which we're able to sequence whole genomes and the cost of sequencing whole genomes has just dropped precipitously. So we have more and more data on the entire DNA content of many different individuals, of many different populations, of many different species. And that's how I study mobile DNA is at the whole genome sequence level. And so a good example is if we sequence the whole genome for the first time of giraffe, of a species of giraffe, people who are interested in heart function, the biomedical researchers who are interested in hearts might be really interested in looking at the giraffe genome because giraffes are known to have to have a really, really powerful heart because they have to pump blood so far up the neck of the giraffe. Oh, of course. I've never thought about that before. And it's elevated above the heart. And exactly. Else. So they've got Boy. these amazing hearts. So maybe the key to understanding some of the genetic diseases associated with heart disease or maybe a key to improving heart function, et cetera, is looking at heart genes. So they might sequence the entire genome of giraffe and then they might compare that sequence to a close relative like cow that does not have an incredible stress scaffold associated with heart function and see what are the unique features of the genes related to heart function in giraffe. So that's that's a classic, what I would call a genomics approach to studying the genome. And you might have some people who are interested in giraffe genes for other reasons. You might be um, working with some conservation biologists who are interested in how much genetic diversity is there in, among giraffes. You might be um, talking to someone who's interested in pigmentation patterns and how giraffes get their spots and why they're unique, or et cetera, et cetera. So lots of different people might be interested in studying the genome of a giraffe for different reasons. But then I would come along because someone else paid to to have the whole genome sequence for giraffe because they had very laudable biomedical uh, reasons for doing it, or they had conservation motives for doing it, or they just thought the giraffe is stinking cool, so we're going to sequence the giraffe because you know, <laughs> what else looks like a giraffe? Yeah. And then I'm kind of a scavenger. I'm like the Han Solo female version. I, this is great. I am a female Han Solo of the genome. I feel like a male Barbara McClintock. <laughs> I'm very underappreciated. Like 20, 30 years from now, people are going to be giving me prizes. I think it, she was in her 80s, so you might have a few more years than that, but you're 40, due. It's coming. From now. Um, yeah, so I, I'm a kind of a, yeah, so a data scavenger. scavenger, and I'll come along and be like, wow, look, someone sequenced the genome of the giraffe and no one's ever done that before. Let's see what the mobile DNA content is in the giraffe. And I do that with a couple of different approaches, but basically I'm looking for all the DNA that nobody else is interested in. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for those parasites. I'm looking for the junk and I want to know how much junk there is. I want to know what groups I can bin that junk into because the junk also has... Um, some of it, there's there's families of genomic parasites that are similar to each other. Um, some families are really active. Some families are dormant. Some families are really active in giraffe. And guess what? They're really active in cow too. But some families are only active in giraffe, and we haven't seen any activity in any other vertebrates in a long time. So that's the kind of work I go and do. I don't usually focus on a single type of mobile DNA and actually look at whether it jumps. I look at the whole genome and I take the whole picture to make my best guess about how much movement has happened over the last few thousand or a few hundred thousand or a few million years in the lineage that led to that giraffe that was sequenced. Hmm. That's that's fascinating. It's kind it of like being an archaeologist of the genome. Mm -hmm. I think it's so maybe I'm not Han Solo. Maybe I'm more of a Indiana Jones. 
Yeah, a little of both. I'd say a mix of the two. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's really fun to do. And it's for a long time, it wasn't very competitive a field because it was scavenge work. Um, now, because there's much more interest in mobile DNA, when a new genome comes out, you you might have to talk to people and say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm working on the mobile DNA already. So it's not... Um, exclusionary. It's not like I don't want you to also work on it. But it used to be that if you were willing to to dig through those piles and piles and piles and piles of DNA that no one else cared to look at very closely, you were very helpful. You were you were like the the scrap metal person that was you were getting paid to come pick up the decrepit Toyota in the parking lot or in the driveway to take it away. Now you might have to um, raise your hand first in order to to get that Toyota. You you were the the hipster of mobile DNA. You were into exactly. it before it was yeah. cool. You no, were... I I I got inspired um, by people before me, but it was a very small community for a long time, and it is a growing community. And now we have, you know, I I don't know how many mobile DNA researchers there are in the world. It's still not that many. So we're, we're it's blowing up though. It's can blowing I, up. It's I have, huge. Uh, uh, mobile DNA journal and, and airports and stuff. <laughs> right, right next to <laughs> GQ and Forbes. There's going to be mobile DNA magazine <laughs> with a crossword. So, how did you get interested in all this stuff? In the that, let's hear let's hear the Genesis story of of this Han Solo, <laughs> uh, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, new movie Let's, that we're putting together. What else has uh, Harrison Ford been in? It was kind of like The Fugitive. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't at all like The Fugitive. Um, so I was in graduate school um, studying to become an ecologist, actually. I was really I was really drawn to biology, but I, I have to admit that part of the reason why I was drawn to biology is because I really like spending time outside. So when I first started graduate school, my plan was to be an ecologist so I could have my job be to spend time outside as much as possible. And when you go to graduate school, you don't have to take that many courses before they kind of set you loose to just do research for a few years, but you do have to take a few courses. And um, I took those courses and strangely, all almost all the courses I signed up for were actually genetics courses, not ecology courses. And I started a journal club with a friend of mine. A journal club is a thing that um, it's a fancy book club, but you don't have to read whole books. You just have to read magazine articles. Of course, those magazine articles are really technical and sometimes impenetrable to the readers. Yes. So, so you get together and discuss it to try to figure it out. And mm. um, and so I started. I need one of those clubs. Yeah. Because I have to read through those to prepare for these. You should have. A, you I should have a, have, a, have a associated good, journal club, book club yeah. with your. I mean, okay, we'll talk about that. Sure. Offline. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I started a journal club because I was so interested in genetics that the courses mm. that I was taking they weren't even satisfying my curiosity. So my pal and I started this journal club and it was him and I and one other student and then like half dozen, a half dozen professors that came every week by choice. This is on top of our classes, on top of their teaching load, on top of their research, just for the love of science to get together and talk about an article. And the, I'm into board games personally. It, it was it was very recreational in uh-huh. its in its vibe. Of course, it took place during the work day, but it was it was really a joyous activity. And part of why I think it was so joyous was because it wasn't required, and so everyone came. And when it was your turn to pick the article, the only instructions we gave was that you should pick something that's not what you do that it's outside of your wheelhouse and the reasoning for that we didn't never really articulate it at the time but thinking back on it i think the reasoning was if there's something that you've been meaning to read for a long time that you can't get around to reading i don't want to be the excuse that you finally read this boring thing that you didn't really want to read i want to be the one who reads with you the thing that you cannot wait to read. That's not on your reading list. That's not a should for you. It's some crazy article that you're going to use this reading group as an excuse to to do for fun. And so um, uh, 
plant biologist brought an article about mobile DNA to that to that discussion group. And I had never heard of mobile DNA at that time. Barbara McClintock was not a well-known figure. There was no postage stamp. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. I could not believe my eyes when I read about this. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? And that was it. Like from that day, I said, this is what I want to study. And that is, I changed. I, I left that graduate program. I went to a different university. I did a different PhD. I changed the focus of my research and not every paper that I've done since then, but almost every project I've done since then has focused on mobile DNA or on mutations in some way or another. And it was really an accident that my interest changed so completely. So I get out of that comfort zone. Exactly. Yeah, that's amazing when, uh, I mean, this is... So maybe it is the fugitive. <laughs> it is um yeah there's a, a fugitive mixed with uh, was he uh was he like a hobo and something or anything like that <laughs> that's what I, yeah. I i'm trying to think of air force uh, of one didn't he play other. a hobo in air force well, one? He, he, was a, he was like very nomadic and and, and uh, as han solo yeah I, I would say we need to get more familiar with harrison ford's uh, repertoire yeah that's i've really been metaphor. slacking <laughs> i i mean that's my fault it's it's my job as a host of this podcast to so, know more Harrison Ford references up. so I definitely I place most of the blame on myself here <laughs> not that I don't love him because <laughs> I do but his characters tend to be very similar to each other no matter what <laughs> well, movie it is like, so. I mean it's like uh, that that was um I think Benedict Cumberbatch is the new Harrison Ford. There you go. There. I I'd be expanded our references. I'd be happy to be a Benedict Cumberbatch in something. He's always very like, oh, I'm very witty and pompous, and I like, I don't care about you, but it's for your own good. I'm and I, this there's out. a good heart in there somewhere, <laughs> but I'm not gonna show it to you. Uh, yeah, I'm, that's a very. It's actually like a. It's just, he's a very English Harrison Ford. If you're, if you were to, if you were to uh, get the genome. Right of of the two the pedigree yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly line them up see yeah. how they're different then maybe give them uh giraffe heart and uh wookie hair <laughs> and then you have you have your perfect creature this is the engineering that you were talking about the, exactly. the perfect being right yeah <laughs> the perfect <being>. wookie giraffe <laughs> you gotta trust me on this um so I, I, but this is, that really is one of my, uh, absolute, uh, wonderful things about, um, science in general and about doing this, this podcast. I often, th this one I was, I was very interested in, but I, I sometimes book podcasts where I'm like, oh boy, I don't, I'm not sure I have any questions to ask about, like, zebra mussels or something like that and then it turns out to be this really eye-opening thing and I, I get to learn something and then and then once in a while you hear something and and you just perceive the world and this it just opens up something inside of you and you just it changes the way that you look at the world and it feels like uh um, bum DNA was that for you? Yeah, I think I'm, I, I wonder how many other vagabonds I'll come up with. Yeah, I I think it was, and I think um, I think strangely, um, while the rest of humanity is drawn to like the Cinderella stories of the genome, you like the drifters. I like the drifters. Yeah, yeah I, I like the um, I like the unintentional consequences of their movement i like the role of serendipity um i like uh surprising people and so you know no, i'm surprising you right now telling you about this work but every time you publish a story on mobile dna you know most of the time you're really you're breaking new ground it's not something we understand that well um there are some some stories with happy endings in this field, um, but they're not that many. And in some ways, the the ending or the coming to the understanding that we are not perfectly designed and everything that happens in human biology or in biology is not for a reason is also really satisfying to me because the assumption that everything is leading to a perfect happy ending, that's a faulty one that we're, we're drawn to as lovers of stories. Mm -hmm. But People love horror stories. They love they love tragedies. They love slow, thoughtful, moving books that are just 
really full of character development. And I think that mobile DNA is kind of some of those other parts of the possible genre space of genetics. And I find those stories really interesting. Uh, have you seen the movie The Road? Uh, the Cormac McCarthy book that was made into the movie? Yeah. I have not seen I, the movie, but I did read the book. Yeah. It, that, that, uh, it, it, that, that's a, it, that, that makes me feel like that's a more fitting story of what, of mobile DNA. It could be. That, that one's particularly know. dark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mobile DNA is not the uh, apocalyptic. Okay. <laughs> Uh, though, though, you it's, know, it's more it's more random than than apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, random ha- doesn't necessarily mean bad. Random uh, doesn't necessarily mean bad. Um, and I would say the movie equivalent of mobile DNA. I'm not sure we would be able to come up. It has not. I don't been even made. know why I'm trying so hard. To make <laughs> weird pop culture references for no reason. I'll, I'll keep but, thinking about it. But um, <laughs> yeah. um, I. Uh, I I mean, that is, uh, I mean, if, if for no other reason, which there's lots of reasons, this is a fantastically interesting conversation, but something that, uh, that is kind of stick with me and it's just an important lesson and reminder for, uh, for the listeners is, is that not everything means something all of the time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is, it's really, I mean, this applies to psychology and therapy and every, it's not always about you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I always learn, like, I mean, as I, you know, I, I learned something on this podcast, this really interesting study about such and such. And then I'm like, oh, maybe the reason I said this or behaved this way this one time was because of this one childhood thing that happened. And that's because I had these ancestors. And it might have just been like a happenstance right. sort of a It could have just been a hiccup. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very, very important lesson. So uh, aside from that, when people when people do, when they're going through the airport and they're like they're like oh, about I mean, to pick I, up their copy of mobile dna yeah magazine. they're like gq or mobile dna magazine or mobile dna today versus <laughs> mobile dna magazine yeah that, uh, which ones are going to be the most uh, you, you don't want to uh, which one do you want to get published in the yeah right mobile dna today is like eh, anyone yeah. can get published in that <laughs> right um so so what is uh you're you're the salesperson for uh, you're working in marketing for mobile dna magazine and you're trying to get consumers to buy you're trying to appeal to it, their interests and in how this is going to benefit them what do you what would you say is like some of the big i guess we kind of just covered it a little bit but but uh any other kind of takeaways why why people should be interested in in this mm, in the- genetics in the first place i mean i think like it's easy for people to be like oh it's good to know if i'm gonna have cancer or why that happens but- right i think people um you know, usually don't, they're not very interested in it until they feel like it's directly relevant to their life. Mm-hmm. And that usually manifests in some health way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why there's a lot of focus and funding on health research. But the reality is, um, you know, as you pointed out, Barbara McClintock first observed mobile DNA, not in a health context, but in an agricultural research context. She was working on corn genetics, and there's a long, illustrious history of corn genetics because it's such an important food crop. So it's still it's still a branch of science that has some utility to it. But I will, I will make the case for uh, my appeal to people would be to actually not rely on utility as being their only inspiration for caring about something because most of the major discoveries about mobile DNA were not made because someone was looking for something useful. They were made because someone was exploring with a little bit of freedom, with a little bit of time, with a little bit of support to explore, and they found something extraordinary. And that's true of the the CRISPR mechanism, for example. No one was trying to find a genetic engineering system that system was discovered by accident in a non-useful area of reason, useful in quotes, I'll say, um, area of research. And it has been co-opted for use in a wide variety of contexts and has this kind of unknown potential at this point to transform how we do things. And it might not be that we use CRISPR for just genetic engineering. It might be that we use CRISPR for diagnostics, or it might be that we use CRISPR for um, patient identification 
uh, forensics or something like that. There's there's a lot of directions that that research can go in. But the point is that at the beginning, when it was first discovered, it was not discovered to be helpful. And so if I was, if I had uh, a spot at the airport and I had people with a long enough layover, I think I would really beg them to consider the possibility of caring about science with no direct benefit to them. Mm-hmm. Because so much of the science that ends up directly benefiting us came about from people wondering about things. And it is true. That's a privilege I have as a scientist to wonder about things. Um, It's moderately well supported in our country. It's very well supported in some countries. It's not at all supported in other countries. But the investment at the society level in thinking about things or researching things for no good reason is really important and near and dear to my heart. So I think that's the plug I would make. And I probably would not get anybody converted <laughs> in no, doing so. Well, I mean, it's also like you you did just, there is a little bit of self in because uh, I mean, first off, curiosity for curiosity's sake, I'm all about that on this show, but curiosity is also a wonderful motivator that can move your life forward in right, all sorts right. of positive directions and keep your brain active. Yeah. So there you go. And yeah. also guys, you, you're just a bunch of mobile DNA, or so you're just a bunch of clutter out you're there. A sack clutter of mobile DNA, that. exactly. <laughs> so it's not garbage; so it's well, junk. <laughs> yeah. What one man's mobile DNA is another man's mobile DNA. Yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a nice piece that came out a few years ago by one of the the pioneers in our field called um, "Turning." treasure turning junk into gold i think was the Mm. the name of it and it was about those rare instances when mobile dna actually is helpful to the host genome um and even though that happens a very small percent of the time when it happens they are extraordinarily great fairy tale stories Mm -hmm. of um proteins that really serve unique roles in biology one good example of a uh, mobile dna um turned good fighting for good is a protein that's produced in the placenta um, during pregnancy. And you can imagine the tissue that forms as part of the placenta during pregnancy has this very strange role where you have a new genetic thing growing inside a mom. And most of the time, our bodies are trained, are, are are going to fight off any foreign genetic body. That's how we get rid of viruses. Mm-hmm. That's how we get rid of bacteria is we, we destroy it. And so when a woman is pregnant, the body needs to not... Yeah, slow your whole immune system. Exactly. You need to be tricked, mm-hmm. essentially, into not rejecting. And, and it doesn't always work. But when it does work, um, there are proteins that need to be really at the interface between the mom and the developing embryo that can kind of broker that deal um, that can help the body not reject this foreign genetic object, not target it for destruction. And so one of the really key proteins in the formation of the placenta is a mobile DNA protein that has been co-opted by the mom to be expressed in that tissue. And it helps with um, nourishing the developing embryo and not rejecting the developing embryo. So that's a really great story that has happened that um, type of gene has been co-opted. That's the the verb we use by the host multiple times during evolution. So it's not just in humans that that's happened. Um, and there's there's another you know handful, few dozen maybe stories like that, and they're amazing. And if we didn't study mobile DNA, we would never hear about these quote unquote success stories where mobile DNA is now serving a purpose in the genome. But that doesn't mean... These are going to be in like mobile DNA today, right? Yes. And then all of the (laughs) academics are going to scoff at the... No, 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 no. We love these stories. No, no, no. Even the high profile stories where... um, you know with the happily ever after we love... Even though I don't study those stories, I love reading about those stories Mm too. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, um, awesome. Thank you for, very much for joining me. I have, uh, I have my guests each week, um, plug a charity of their choice. If you have one in mind, you'd like to pitch I, out there for listeners. Given that, uh, I'm such an avid listener myself, um, to the radio, I'm going to make a plug for OPB, who's been nice enough to have me on their program before and they're good supporters of Science on Tap and, um, uh, 
the what's the OPB? Uh, Oregon, Oregon Public. Public Broadcasting. Yeah. Great. So donate to your local NPR station if you can. Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining me. Thank uh, you, Shane. This has been a pleasure. Sarah Solo. Well, <laughs> it doesn't have one a more. Ring. It doesn't. It doesn't. I had yeah. to, uh, one one more feeble attempt at a. Yeah. <laughs> at a Is he a captain? I don't. Yeah. I'll work on my my <laughs> monikers. Oh uh, well, it's been lovely having you, and and thanks for uh, sharing all this wonderful information with with everybody. A pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful curious people and we'll talk with you next week next week on the show we're talking with chris gowan who she has her new book one nation under song which is not a science book by the way but a fantastic interesting story but we talk a lot about her other science books which are all about kind of sexual decision making how uh, young people make their sexual decisions how uh, I imagine if you're like me the sex ed classes in your high school failed you miserably that's most of us so how do we change that what how should they be instead that's the conversation for next week again stand up science is my main thing that I'm plugging right now I uh, I just I'm trying to trying to build this thing up to be a regular thing all over the nation so anything that you can do to spread the word for this test run if this test run is successful it is a nationwide tour starting next february at the latest but starting sometime early 2019 still coordinating some dates and some venues but we need to make sure these first eight go off uh, with not without a hitch but they just need to be full and everyone needs to have fun and so far we're one for one with madison now off to minneapolis october 17th chicago milwaukee des moines portland oregon seattle washington tacoma washington and uh, that's it we fill those up and and this takes off everywhere so if you know anyone in any of those areas they're gonna love the show i promise you it's it's, it's very accessible for everybody uh, any kind of background, and especially if you're a listener to this show, you are going to be very, very interested in this live event. Stand up science, comedians plus scientists plus beers equals stand up science. Check it out. You get to be involved. It's fantastic. It's my dream. Help me make my dreams come true and attend this dream of a show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Editor Jimmy Martin, for making the Here We Are podcast sound fantastic. And thank you for the outro music by Plunkett. If you want more great indie music, go to the Jimmy Fro podcast on iTunes today. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.
Power goes out.